I'm going to bring an image up on the screen here and see if any of our young kids in here can tell me what this is. What is that item right there? What do you call that? What? It's not a sledgehammer. Anybody else? What, what do we call that thing right there? A gavel. It is a gavel. And it's like a hammer. It's like a mallet. But it's, but it's different. What, who uses a gavel? Children. Anybody? Who uses a gavel? People who work in the court. So a, a judge would use a gavel, right? Now, gavels are used for other purposes. Like an auctioneer might use a gavel. Or someone presiding over a business meeting might use a gavel. But the thing we most associate it with is a judge. Having that gavel to call the court into proceeding, to call order to the court when there's, there's disruption. And also, at the end of the court's proceedings, when the sentence is pronounced, the sentence is pronounced and the gavel comes down and it's done. It's set. The judge has made his judgment and the sentence is to be carried out. I want us to have that image in our mind today as we study this next portion of John chapter 3. I want you to go and turn there, if you would, to John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16. We're continuing through our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We're walking through the life of Christ. And this is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We're going to finish out his conversation with Nicodemus today. We're going to begin in verse 16. So let's stand, if you would, in the honor of the reading of God's Word. This is God's authoritative Word. This is as authoritative as if Jesus were right here in the flesh speaking to you. John 3, starting in verse 16. The Word of God says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading of the word. We pray now that you would grant us ears to hear, grant me a tongue to speak the truth. Lord, guard us all from error. Guard us from hearing things wrong and from me from speaking things wrong. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I brought the image of the gavel up because Jesus brings in judgment, legal type of wording into the final portion of his conversation with Nicodemus. And that's what we're going to focus on today. But a little recap is necessary because apparently... In this early part of Jesus' ministry, many people had been coming to Jesus and were attracted to him due to his miracles and his signs. And they had a belief in him, according to John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. They had a belief in him, but it wasn't a real, genuine faith. And thus, that passage says that Jesus didn't commit himself to them. He didn't entrust himself to them because their faith wasn't real. So then in chapter 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of night with a similar type of hope, a similar type of belief that, that Jesus is, is from God, that maybe he is the Messiah, but it's a superficial, sign-dependent, and very man-centered faith. So Jesus proceeds to, to talk to Nicodemus about what true faith looks like. And that's what most of the chapter 3 of John is about. It's about belief. What is true belief all about? Jesus shows Nicodemus that in order to possess true belief that pleases God, he must be born again. Nicodemus needed to be born again. Jesus goes on to say that this new birth is a, a sovereign work of God's Spirit. We read that in, in verse 8 of chapter 3. It's of a spiritual nature. And poor old Nicodemus here, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get 
what true spirit-wrought faith looks like. So instead of diving any deeper into these heavenly things that, that Nicodemus was struggling to, to understand, Jesus simply takes Nicodemus to Numbers 21 and shows him this is what your belief needs to look like. He shows him the story of the Israelites who had to look to the bronze serpent in order to be saved from the curse that God had sent to them because of their sin. Jesus was showing Nicodemus that the sun would be lifted up just as the serpent was lifted up. Jesus was showing Nicodemus that he, along with all of mankind, like the Israelites in the wilderness, are in a state of rebellion. And that God's wrath is justly upon them. And that man's situation is dire. The poison of sin is already in us. We've been bitten. But that God has provided a gracious way of escape. And namely, that is the Son of Man himself, who would be lifted up just as the snake was, so that all who would look to him, all that would look to him and cast a gaze upon him would be saved. And that's what true belief was all about. And then Jesus wants to further expound that and further explain that. And so we come to John 3.16 that we looked at last week. And Jesus says, For, he's explaining farther what he just said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sacrificed. He gave his precious one and only unique Son, allowing him to be lifted up just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness to provide salvation for all who would cast their gaze upon him. And he did this out of love. He so loved the world. And we, I mentioned last week that world, in John's usage of it throughout his book, is, represents fallen mankind, sinful, rebellious, hell-deserving mankind. And more specifically and extravagantly, God poured out his love on the whoever believes, the whosoevers of John 3.16. Now, we need, I want to back up just a bit here because I want to bring out something I didn't focus on last week. And that is that in the Greek, there is no word for whoever. There's no pronoun whoever, whosoever. A literal rendering of the text of John 3.16 in the Greek would say this. And I'm reading the last part of it, whoever believes. It says, so that all the believing ones in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves all mankind with a providential, yearning, inviting love, but upon the believing ones, and that's how it's literally translated, upon the believing ones, he has poured out a special measure of love, an infinitely intense, eternal, totally undeserved, stunningly sacrificial, rescuing love. It's a love that is a free gift to all who would believe. What a gift. A gift not bought on Black Friday, a gift instead bought on Good Friday. That brings us up to speed to where we're at now. And we want to focus on the rest of this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Remember, keep in mind, Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand what true faith, what true belief is. So it's no surprise that in this section of John chapter 3, the word belief is mentioned six times. Matter of fact, it's mentioned four times just in verses 16, 17, and 18. Belief, belief, belief. And now Jesus begins to differentiate between two groups. Those who believe and those who do not believe. Two different groups here. Those who believe and those who do not believe. We already see it in John three sixteen. Whoever believes in him should not perish. So that's the one group. The, the, the ones who believe in him, the believing ones who won't perish. And then we can conclude that there's another group. There's the ones who do perish, meaning those are the unbelieving ones. Now for someone like Nic Nicodemus, this is going to cause a bit of a stir in his heart and, and raise not a few questions. Because in, in his religion that he practiced, the Judaism that he was observing and the Phariseeism that he was a part of... Nicodemus probably thought that the way into the kingdom of God was law-keeping, was doing good deeds. Eternal life in the kingdom of God would be achieved through the keeping of the law, would be what Nicodemus would have thought. But Jesus keeps focusing on belief. He keeps coming back. Belief, 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 belief in the Son of Man, belief in the Son of God. Now, deeds do play a part in the whole story, but not the part Nicodemus had assumed it played. Not the part that so many today assume that it plays. 
99% of the people you talk to, if you were to ask them, what does it take for a person to go to heaven, to, to receive eternal life, or to, to see the kingdom of God, they would say something along the lines of, well, you've got to do good things. You've got to be a good person. In other words, it's law-keeping. They wouldn't word it that way. But they would assume that there's, this, there's these morals that we have to keep, and so long as the scales are balanced more towards you've done more good than bad, then you're in, right? And so Jesus' words that shock Nicodemus here should shock our culture today as well. Law-keeping to earn God's favor is man's default position. It's what people default to. But it's not what Jesus is teaching. So there's two groups here. There's believers and there's non-believers. Now Jesus begins to explain a bit further. And in doing so, in verse 17, he shifts away from the language of life and perishing to legal language. He begins to talk with terms that are legal, technical terms. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's a, that's a legal, judicial term. To judge the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in verse 18, he'll continue to use this word condemned or judged. So that's why I brought this image of the gavel for us to think about. Because really we're entering into the courtroom of heaven here. Jesus is bringing mankind, he's bringing the world, and he's putting the world on trial. Now before we get there though, I want to look at verse 17 and let's address the mission of Jesus. Let's talk about the mission of Jesus as described in verse 17. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now the word send here, it's the verbal form of the word apostle. So it's a, very, it's a technical term referring to carrying the idea of a formal mission that someone is sent on. A formal mission that they have. So Jesus' mission here is not to condemn or judge sinners. But according to John here, according to Jesus here in John, it's to save sinners. That the world might be saved through him. Now think for a moment there that the world might be saved through him. Now, unless you're a universalist in this room, meaning that you believe all mankind will, will ultimately be saved through Jesus, regardless of their belief, regardless of, of whatever uh, they, they think about the gospel, unless you're a universalist, and if you are, I would love to have a conversation with you after the worship service. But unless you're a universalist here, the word world cannot mean that every single person is going to be saved by Jesus. So again, I come back to the definition I gave you last week that John refer, uses the word world in a very general way in multiple passages of, of the book of John and in 1 John and, or his other epistles as well to refer to this general fallen state of mankind. The world is this place of sinners who have rebelled against God. And Jesus' mission was to come into the world and save some out of the world. So we have to interpret the world here in a, in a pretty general way, if we're to understand the mission of Christ, which was to condescend to human flesh, become a slave on our behalf, and be obedient to God to the point of death on the cross, so that out of this fallen world, some might be saved. That was his mission. It was a mission of salvation and not condemnation or judgment. So when I read that, the mission of Christ being Salvation and not condemnation, I struggle a little bit, to be honest with you. Because we read other passages about Jesus being a judge. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is that the mission of Jesus' first advent, his first coming, we're about to celebrate advent, that word means coming. His first advent, his first coming, was a mission of salvation. But there's a second advent. There's a second coming. Matter of fact, when we celebrate Christmas Advent, we should also be praying for the second Advent. And in his second coming, we read this, Jesus' own words, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, there's that two groups of people again. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There is a second advent where Jesus is coming and he's setting up court. And he's bringing every single person who's believed into the courtroom of God. In his first advent, Jesus has come as an uncondemning judge. He's still the judge. 
but he's come as an uncondemning judge. But he will come again to execute final and total righteous judgment upon the world. His first coming is one of salvation. His second coming is one of judgment. But if you're a student of the scriptures, which I hope everyone in here is, you may still be uncomfortable because John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus says this, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What are we to make of that? John three seventeen says he's not come to judge the world, yet John 9, verse 39, says that he has come for judgment. Is this a contradiction? Well, I think if we, if we stay on the superficial level of Scripture, then yes, we would say, yeah, this is a contradiction. It doesn't seem to make any sense to us. But, but I think if we dig deeper, we'll understand. First of all, this John three seventeen is speaking, again, with the word sent being the verbal form of the word apostle in a more formal way of what the mission of Christ was to be. And I believe this second mention here is referring to what is happening as Jesus carries out his mission, as his word goes forth, as the gospel word of Jesus Christ goes forth, it itself, the gospel itself, is bringing judgment. It's bringing judgment on the world. Jesus came to offer salvation, but in that free offer of salvation comes judgment for those who won't believe. In the offer of the gospel itself, There is judgment for those who reject and won't listen or won't hear the gospel. That's what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. I've had this conversation with a couple of you in here. I serve as a corporate chaplain. And one of the things I have to record on my chaplaincy for my superiors is how many times I've shared the gospel. Which is good. I should be held accountable for sharing the gospel. But one of the things I want to know is how many people have responded to the gospel. And I know what they mean by that. They want to know if anybody prayed to receive Christ or, or confess the Lord Jesus through my sharing of the gospel. But what I want to say is everybody responded. Everybody responded to the gospel because you either respond for it or against it every time it's preached. The word goes forth and the gospel is either responded to positively or it's responded to negatively. But it's always responded to. So maybe I'll start doing that. It'll look really good on my reports to say I have a 100% response rate every time I share the gospel. Todd, just ignore that, right? Don't, don't tell Brent any of that, right? But the fact of the matter is, we, like Christ, have a mission of mercy and of grace for we are to take the message of salvation, the gospel, to all We are to share it with all, but the very nature of the gospel brings life to those who believe and thus are freed from condemnation, and it brings death to those who do not believe and thus remain under condemnation. Every time someone hears the gospel, they respond. They either are softened toward belief or into belief, or they are hardened in willful unbelief. Every time the gospel is shared. This is what Paul was speaking of in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2, 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, here's these two groups again. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You know how that is. When you share the gospel, there's some that say you're a fool. That's a foolish message. I want to have nothing to do with it. It's like the fragrance of death. It's like a stench of a dead body. They don't even want to be near it. The moment they begin to hear it, they hate it. I don't want to hear you talk about the gospel. And there's others who are drawn to it the moment you begin to preach it and teach it and share it. To one group it is the stench of death. To others it is the fragrance of life. You see, people then and, and people today, people in Jesus' day, I'm thinking of the people of chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, and the people today, we like to respect who Jesus is, Or who we think Jesus is, but we reject his message. People respect Jesus, but reject the message. That's our culture today. They don't want to receive his testimony that he speaks of in verse 11. They respected a man who could fill their bellies with miracle bread and miracle fish, but rejected the man who told them to feed on his blood and his flesh. They respected 
Jesus who could do things for them, who they could make their king, but they rejected the Jesus who would be despised and rejected and nailed to a cross. They respected Jesus but rejected the message. Men are the same way today. We want a philosopher Jesus. We want the humanitarian Jesus. We want the egalitarian Jesus. We want the political revolutionary Jesus. We want the moral example Jesus. But we do not want the message that comes from the lips of Jesus that one must repent of his sins and believe in the Son in order to be saved. That Jesus we crucify. And so Jesus' mission here was a mercy mission of grace, not judgment. But the mission itself and the message of the mission brought judgment and continues to bring judgment to this day. So let's go into the courtroom here. I'll remind you of the gavel that I showed you earlier. Let's go into the courtroom here, and then now I can turn you to your notes. If you look in your notes there, it says, The world is therefore on trial, and two verdicts have come back. So imagine, if you would, a courtroom drama. I mentioned this in a sermon not too long ago. I love courtroom dramas, especially the courtroom dramas where you have to think, and you don't know if the person's guilty or not. And you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to weigh the evidence that's being shared with you as you watch the movie or the TV show. So here we have a a courtroom drama. But we're going to skip right to the verdict. Verse 18 is the verdict being read. So in a courtroom drama, the end of the courtroom drama, someone stands up and reads the verdict. So here's the verdict, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, not guilty. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, already guilty, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there's two points in your notes. Point number one and point number two. I'm going to go ahead and give you the answers to both of those points. The world is on trial and two verdicts have come back. Number one, those defendants who have believed in the Son have been declared not guilty. But secondly, those defendants who have not believed in the Son have been found guilty. And I worded those carefully. One group has been declared not guilty and the other group has been found guilty. Now I'm going to start with the second group. So I'm going to mess up your notes here. You're going to have to come back. You're going to take notes about the first group. You're going to have to come back up your sheet and do that. But let's start with the second group here. This group who have not believed in the Son and have been found guilty. As I said, I mentioned it that way for a reason. They have been found guilty. The scripture here says they were condemned already. That's what Jesus says. They are condemned already. No special effort had to be taken to place unbelievers under condemnation. They are already there. Their unbelief demonstrates it and seals it. Verse 18 goes on to say, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Unbelief in the Son is the unpardonable sin, by the way. All other sins can be forgiven when one casts himself upon the Son. But to not believe in the Son, to not embrace the light, to not embrace the forgiveness that comes only through the Son, to not hear and respond to the gospel word spoken that has been spoken from Genesis 3.15 onward throughout the Scriptures, to not believe that gospel is to find oneself already condemned. You see, the greater sin of Judas, Judas Iscariot, wasn't his betrayal of Jesus. That was bad. Or his greed and corruption. Or his ingratitude and wicked spirit. The greater sin was his not seeking the pardon of Jesus after his sins were laid bare. Not seeking the forgiveness of the one who he had lived with for the past three years. The message of the gospel that he had heard from the Messiah, Jesus himself. But even before not believing in this gospel message, men are already guilty before God. Even before they refuse to believe. John 3, 36, you can jump down to the bottom of John 3 and you see this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say he doesn't believe and therefore he incurs the wrath of God. It says that He doesn't obey God, he doesn't believe, doesn't obey, and the wrath of God remains on him. It's already there, and the lack of belief just cements it further. 
Jesus himself goes on to explain this very thing. He wants to examine the verdict, so he continues. He, he wants to examine the verdict here in verse 19. And this is the verdict. This is the judgment. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Now let me pause right there real quick. What, what is light? There's a various different interpretations here on what light means. But most people agree that it's either speaking about the truth about Jesus or it's Jesus himself. And I say you can't separate the two. It's the same. It is the truth of the revelation of God about his gospel, about Jesus. It's the word of the gospel and it's manifest fully and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So there's two pieces of evidence that Jesus is going to bring and show Nicodemus here. Here's the first one. Evidence number one. Fallen men love their sin and want to remain in it. People love the darkness rather than the light. When it says that people loved the darkness here, the word love here is the word agape. So they're committed wholeheartedly to evil. We don't just like it. We are enraptured by it. All men. Light has come into the world. Again, this is a general term for the mass of sinful humanity. Light has come into the world, but mankind, the world, loves its sin. We love our sin. Scripture does not allow us to put man in some morally neutral state. Where he might turn towards the good or he might turn towards the bad. His default position is rebellion. He is totally corrupted. In the garden, God said concerning sin, you shall surely die. Not you might die. You're predisposed to dying now because you sin. He said, it is sure you shall die. You are spiritually dead now that you've eaten from that fruit. Sinful man is in a dreadful state. And I only push this point over and over again in this passage because Jesus does. I know you're looking at me thinking, okay, Steve, we've heard about the depravity of man now. Four weeks in a row, lay off. But Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to see this. And I say, American evangelical Christianity, we have got to see this. If we don't see it, we will not grasp the glory of the gospel to its fullest extent. I don't think we can fully appreciate the gospel if we don't understand the legal sentence that all men are under, and that all men deserve. All have sinned. All have fallen short. The wages of sin is death. None seek for God. No one does good. No, not one. Even the deeds that we might consider to be righteous are like polluted garments to our God. His holiness demands perfection, and all we can bring is our dressed-up corruption. It's all we can bring. Corruption with pretty clothes on that are simply filthy rags to our Lord, our holy God. Therefore, mankind, this world is under condemnation. The wrath of God is upon mankind. Jesus does not portray unbelievers as unfortunate victims, but as people who willfully, joyfully remain in intellectual and moral darkness in open hostility toward God, which is the second piece of evidence laid out here. Evidence number two, fallen men hate God and refuse to come to him. Now let me say also real quick, or just add a little bit, this isn't in my notes, but when we talk about the sinful condition of man, we don't mean that all men are as sinful as they can be. I'm not trying to say that every little baby comes out with a swastika on their forehead. Not all men are as sinful as they can be. Because we can wallow in our rebellion more and more and more. But one sin is sufficient. One sin is an is a act of high treason against God. Therefore, all men have fallen short. All men are born with a sinful nature that wants to go towards the darkness. And all men are born under the guilt of Adam. We bear Adam's guilt. 
and we share in it because we prove that we deserve the same punishment. We deserve the wrath of God as well. So the second thing I want us to see here is that fallen men hate God and refuse to come to him. For everyone who does wicked things, according to the scriptures here, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. So man, fallen man, hates the light. He's not just adverse to it. He hates it. Romans 5.10 says that we were enemies of God prior to his reconciling work. Enemies in open rebellion against God. That's what happened in Eden. It was rebellion against God, and we've inherited that guilt. Colossians 1 says that we are alienated, hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds. And that's how the state we were in before God reconciled us to himself. God does the reconciling work. This is how it functions. We're rebels. We're fighting against God. God reconciles. He takes us and brings us to himself. He doesn't wait for us to put up the white flag. It's while we're still sinners, Romans 5a, while we're still enemies, while we're in that state of open rebellion, he reconciles us to himself. So man will not come. He will not come to the light. He does not want to come. Why? Jesus says, lest his works should be exposed. Because light exposes sin. We don't want to have what we love so much exposed as bad. We love our sin, and we don't want it to be exposed as bad. You know, I, I love Reese's Cups. I love them. They're really good. Whoever thought of mixing chocolate and peanut butter, they should get a Nobel Prize of some sort. I love my Reese's Cups, and, and, and I could just eat them every meal. Just chunk them down. I mean, there's protein in them, right? But someone comes up to me and says, those are bad for you. You can't do that. You can't eat those all day. Do you know what's in the Reese cup? And I say, I don't want to know what's in the Reese cup. Be quiet. I don't want to know how bad it is for me. I love this stuff. I just want to eat it all the time. In a much more serious note, we love our sin. We don't want to know what's in it. We don't want to know. We don't want to know that it's bad. We don't want to know that it's rebellion. No, it's not that bad. Really? But the light of the gospel sheds, sheds that light upon what we do, our deeds, and exposes them and says, whoa, this isn't just a little deal. This is a big deal. It's high treason against God. Now, this doesn't necessarily, when it talks about these works being exposed, it doesn't necessarily mean secret sin, like, like someone's secret porn addiction coming to the light. It can mean that, but the sense here is more that we don't want to have our behaviors that we love so much actually revealed as sin. We don't want them to be shown to be what they are, sin. That's why people today can so flagrantly and openly practice sin publicly because we live in a culture that won't call sin, sin. So people aren't ashamed of it. People aren't ashamed of their sin because the culture doesn't call it sin. So when you preach the gospel and you share the word and the law exposes that their works are indeed sinful... They hate it. They hate the Word of God, and they hate God Himself. We, we live in a culture that likes to call evil good and good evil. But when the light of the Word of God is shown upon our sin, our sin no longer is, is uh, our opinion, or our preference, or our right, or our prerogative. It's sin. Plain and simple. But we don't want it to be called sin, do we? That's why we want to keep Jesus as a nice philosopher or a prophet. We forget who he really is and what he's actually said because his word is a light that exposes our sin. And man left in his condition here, who loves sin and wants to remain in it, who hates God and refuses to come to him, man left in his sinful condition runs from the light. When I lived in Ecuador, we went to the jungle for mission trips and in the jungle in Ecuador, they had huge cockroaches. I mean, very large cockroaches. I mean, you could put a leash on it and make it your pet. They were that big. Big old things. And I remember going to this one house where we were going to uh, be sleeping. And the, the boys were going to be sleeping in the attic. And we'd go upstairs and we'd turn on that attic light. And wouldn't you know it, just these gigantic cockroach puppies. That's what they look like. They go, they're scattering off all over the place. And you're just like, Ugh. The moment that light came on, they went and they found some dark corner to get into. 
And that's, that's what happens when the light of the gospel is shown. Men, we love our sin and we, we prefer the darkness and scatter off. And thus God's judgment, God's verdict is absolutely just. There is no injustice with God. None. We need to say with Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's absolutely just in bringing a guilty verdict upon mankind. But there is another verdict here. There is another verdict. And so let's go back to the first verdict. Those defendants who have believed in the Son have been declared not guilty. Have been declared not guilty. This other group are the ones who look to the Son of Man in John 3.15. These are the believing ones of John 3.16. Their destiny is not perishing, but life. They are declared not guilty. Therefore, there is now no condemnation upon them. How How are they described here? Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. These believers are the ones who do what is true. Let me just say as a parenthetical note here, there's always a connection between belief and doing. There's always a connection between belief and doing. We don't have time to go into that much today, maybe later. But they do what is true and thus they come to the light. They practice deeds that bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. But notice something. I intentionally called these defendants the ones who were declared not guilty instead of found not guilty. In your normal courtroom drama, the defendant is found either guilty or not guilty. Meaning the evidence points beyond a reasonable doubt to the, to the fact that they either, they either committed the crime or they didn't commit the crime. And my friends, the evidence when we look at our life points to the fact that all of us, all of us in here, committed the crime. Every single one of us. In the courtroom of God, the evidence has been laid out and we have not been found innocent. Our guilt, like the guilt of all mankind, is overwhelming. Every sin is a crime against the holy God. So let's, let's, let's do a little math here. If you were to sin five times a day, let's say that's all you do, five times a day. And if, you're, if you only sin five times a day, then you are a lot better than me. But let's say you only sin five times a day. So in the course of a year, you will have sinned 1,825 times. And then if you live the average lifespan of an American, about 75 years, you will have committed 136,875 sins. But let's reword it. 136,875 crimes against God. There's the stack of evidence. Almost 200,000 crimes stacked up against you and against me. The evidence is overwhelming, but believers have been declared not guilty. For they have been justified before God, not by anything that they've done or anything that they've not done. But by God's grace alone, through faith alone, they have believed on the Son. They have looked to the one lifted up as a curse on their behalf and have put all their hope in Him alone, in Him alone. They have seen their sin. They've seen what it is. They have seen their helpless estate. And they have turned from sin to Christ alone for mercy and for salvation. And they have had their sins forgiven. They have had God's wrath taken. And they have had an alien righteousness given to them. And they've been declared not guilty. Oh, unbeliever, if you're here today, if there's an unbeliever here today, do you see the mountain of evidence? You are guilty as charged, but here stands the Son beckoning you with a deep and very real love to come and believe. Stop arguing your case before the Almighty. And admit your sin, confess to your crimes, and plead for the Son to forgive you of your sin and find in Him your only hope for eternal life. You see, for the one who is in Christ, the pounding of the gavel of our just sentence before a holy God, bang, bang, bang. The pounding of that gavel has been replaced. It's been replaced 
by the mallet of God's just wrath. Clink, clink, clink. Nailing the Son to the cross on behalf of all who would simply put their hope in Him and believe. Jesus took the sentence. And for those who believe, we have been declared not guilty. God is the just and the justifier. And belief by its very nature is not something we can take credit for. It's a casting of our whole hope upon something other than ourselves. But the Apostle Paul goes even beyond that and tells us that our our faith is a gift from God, which is in keeping with Jesus' words here to Nicodemus that, that faith, belief, is the first and inseparable fruit of being born again, being made into a new creation. Your belief comes from your being transformed into a new creation. When I lived in Kentucky prior to going overseas as a missionary kid, we lived right near Mammoth Cave National Park, and we'd go in the caves, and in the rivers in the caves, you would see cave fish. And cave fish were these white fish that had no pigmentation. And what was really strange about the cave fish is they had eye sockets, but no eyes. They had eye sockets, but no eyes. Now, I could grab that fish and take it outside and put it in a stream and wouldn't be helping it one single bit. First of all, it would suffer because of its lack of pigmentation, but also it doesn't have any eyes. It can't see where it's going. It needs to be in the other environment. It wants to be in the other environment. In order for that fish to be able to see, it needs to be given eyes. (laughs) And in order for a, a person to put their faith in Christ, the Spirit must blow and new life must come. Jesus brings us full circle here. Full circle. And I want to look at the last two verses real closely here in conclusion. I want us to see what Jesus is saying. Because this is very important. This is Jesus' summary statement here to Nicodemus. Look at verse 20. There are three parts to verse 20. First part. For everyone who does wicked things. That's the first part. Second part. Hates the light and does not come to the light. That's the second part. And the third part, lest his works should be exposed. Now verse 20 and verse 21 are parallel. Meaning now Jesus is going to state in a positive the same things about a believer. So let's look at the three parts of the statement in verse 21. But whoever does what is true. So in verse 20 you have whoever does wicked things. In verse 21 you have whoever does what is true comes to the light. That's the second part. He comes to the light. In verse 20, you see that they hate the light. Unbelievers hate the light and do not come to the light. But in verse 21, believers come to the light. And then the end of that verse, verse 21, it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works, let me pause right there, what do you expect it to say? Because if we're going with the parallel here, if you look at the wicked man, it says, lest his works should be exposed. In other words, you see how evil his works are. So you come to this one and you say, that whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works, and I think what we expect to hear Jesus say, is that his works are good, or that his works are acceptable, or that his works are accepted by God, but that's not what we have. What does Jesus say? He says, so that it may be clearly seen, he wants us to see it clearly, that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus isn't about to give any of the glory to anyone but his Father. In God. It could be translated through God, or by God, or by the power of God. Matter of fact, you may have other translations out there that translate them that way. The King James puts it this way, wrought by God. Though it can be seen that his works have been wrought, have been done by God. And the Holman Christian Standard Version, our our new Southern Baptist translation, puts it this way. It's probably the most clear of all of them. It says accomplished by God. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been accomplished by God. Jesus says to Nicodemus that the salvation of sinners... It's got to be clearly seen, Nicodemus, that the salvation of sinners is not about the sinners. It's about God. When sinners come to Christ, it should be so clear to us, knowing our rebellious state, 
When sinners come to Christ, it should be so clear to us that it is God's work and not ours. And when we get to John 6, we'll spend probably a good amount of time looking at how Jesus talks about this over and over and over again, that we must be drawn by the Father through the Spirit to the Son. And Jesus says in John 10 that his sheep hear his voice and they come to him. The point is that Jesus is trying to make is that God is the agent of change. He is the drawer. He is the wooer. He is the one who calls out the sheep. He is the difference maker, not us. This is Jesus' summary statement to Nicodemus. So I'll put it this way, and it's in your notes. Verse 20 makes it clear that the guilt, I'll bring it up here, the guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in the heart of man that loves darkness and hates light. So the guilt, the guilt of not coming to Jesus, that, that resides in the heart of men who love darkness. But, verse 21 makes it clear that the grace of coming to Jesus springs forth from the heart of God to save undeserving sinners. The guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in the heart of man that loves darkness and hates light, but the grace of coming to Jesus springs forth from the heart of God to save undeserving sinners. So in the end, so in the end with both groups, we've got two groups, we've got two verdicts. So in the end with two groups and two verdicts, God is glorified in both. You see, the righteousness and glory of God is displayed in both groups. God's justice is magnified in the verse 19 and 20 group that receive their just sentence. And God's grace is magnified in the verse 21 group as rebels are brought to Christ and live. God is glorified in both groups. His justice is magnified. His grace is magnified. And Jesus wants this to be clearly seen. So to the unbeliever this morning, you may be asking, well, am I called? Am I, am I one of the ones that was drawn? That's not the question you're supposed to ask. The question you ask is, do you hear the shepherd's voice today? Do you hear the call? Do you hear the word of Jesus, the word that he's spoken to you? And will you believe that word? Those are the questions you need to answer. And if you find yourself hearing the words of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and you sincerely turn from your sin and yourself and you believe in him, then yes, you are his sheep and you will never perish. He's got you in his hand. You've been declared not guilty. There is now no longer any condemnation upon you. The question is, will you believe? Will you believe? And when you do, and if you do, then let's praise God for that. I'm not going to throw you a party. I'm going to praise God. Will you believe? I heard a sad thing on the radio yesterday. A lady who was being interviewed, may have been Friday, about the lottery. I guess the lottery is at a peak right now. with Lots of money waiting for someone to get the right ping pong balls in the right order. So... This one lady said, I hope I win the lottery. She said, I hope I win it. It's going to be a great Christmas if I can just win the lottery. That was her hope. You can put your hope in ping pong balls. Or you can put your hope in the sun. And it truly will be a great Christmas if you put your hope in the sun. Matter of fact, you may win the lottery. And still be as miserable then, as you are today, if you haven't found your hope in Christ alone. So repent and believe. Look to the Son. Look to the Son. To the believer in here this morning, remember where you came from. You're still fighting that cockroach temptation to scatter into the dark corners of sin because you still live in a fleshly body. And until you're delivered from this body of death, you'll always struggle with your sins. So for the believer, I leave you with 1 John 1, verses 5 through 9. And let this be the verse on your mind before we go to the table today. 
First John 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to the one, to the unbeliever, I say, repent and believe. Look to the Son. And to the believer, I say, repent and believe and look to the Son. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes as we begin to get our hearts ready for the taking of the Lord's Supper. Father, we praise you for who you are and for what you've done. We praise you that you sent the Son. You sent the one and only, the unique Son, on a mission, a mission of mercy, a mission of grace, with a message of truth, the gospel, the gospel light. And that message is shining across this sinful world like a beacon. And God, there are two groups. There are some who are running from that light as hard as they can into a dark corner because they don't want their sin to be exposed and they love their sin and they hate you. And there are others who, because of the work your Holy Spirit has done in their heart, they love you and they want to come to you and they want to obey you. Yet we struggle. We struggle in this dark world with our sin. And so we ask you, Lord, for your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace to help us to be obedient, to help us be doers of the truth. So God, you get all the praise and all the glory in the courtroom of heaven because there's no injustice with you. You are glorified when your justice is put on display in the punishment of deserving sinful rebels. Yet your mercy is also on display that you took some of us rebels and plucked us from the fires of hell and turned us into something we weren't before, a new creation, and brought us into the kingdom of Christ, not because of anything we did, but solely because my Savior took the mallet of justice upon himself so that I could be declared not guilty. Thank you, God. Let us remember these things as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.